Welcome. This is the Larkin Hoffman Real Estate Podcast. I'm Megan Rogers. For this episode, I had the opportunity to speak with Johnny Opara. He's a local developer who works to bring affordable and sustainable multifamily projects to the community. And he's got a unique path to this career. When I sat down with Johnny, I had three things on my mind. I wanted to talk with him about how he got here, what he's building now, and what he wants to see happen in the future. Number one, how did you become a developer? Well, thank you, Megan. Thank you so much. I think the first time we met was a few years ago, ULI. Yeah. So just as a breaking point, we went in the ULI, what was like the official term? Building a foundation. Building a foundation. The Building Foundation course has, I think, nine meetings over the course of a 12-month period, and you learn about the stages of development. And each stage is represented by a veteran attorney or a veteran developer or a veteran banker. And so how I know you is that on those calls, you were the person who asked the question that I was like, oh, wait, (laughs) I need to start paying attention because this is actually relevant. I am going to learn something. I'm not getting just like the overview. You're like, no, 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 we all all understand what you're bringing to the table. Could you tell me specifically how you address this problem? And I loved it so much. I'd be like, oh, thankfully, John, and it was all COVID, right? Yeah. So like typically is done in person, it's lunches, it's hosted at these different venues around town, not for us. It was all Zoom in our, you know, kitchens and living rooms. But you were the guy who I was like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, he's talking. Okay, I got to write this down. So <laughs> you, know, you know what's interesting? I was actually penalized. Um, what? Not with ULI, but I was penalized just because of me being so inquisitive. You know, in corporate America, my background is in sales and leadership. So I started in 2004. But I've been in the relationship business for quite some time. So I've always just liked being around people and learning about their behaviors and just kind of seeing where that relationship can go. So I just remember, you know, working one time for someone and uh, they called me before the meeting and said, hey, Johnny, whatever questions you have, can you tell me the questions? And then I'll ask the questions for you. So the reason why I ask questions is because if I don't know something, right, I'm going to ask you so I can get the answer. Absolutely. And usually what ends up happening is someone that asks those kind of questions, in my mind, they should retain that information and then use that information in the future. So to your earlier point, my journey kind of started just like that. Um, well, actually, let me just kind of back up. You know, there was a traumatic event in 2008. I was laid off. And, you know, when you're laid off, you're dealing with all these different emotions. You know, how are you going to pay your bills and stuff like that. And I said, you know, I don't want to feel that they're feeling this despair, hopelessness, right? And you're trying to figure out, you know, you know, just life as a whole. And so I grabbed a journal that someone gave to me and I wrote down, you know, what I wanted to do. So I wanted to make sure moving forward that no one would have that kind of power over me. Hmm. Yeah. So I started my company, JO Companies, registered with the Secretary of State, did everything online. And I wrote down a few different businesses. I wrote down a perfume business called J.O. Companies, and we had two fragrance lines. We had J.O. Perfumes, and then we had Adora. Okay. And I actually sold a few bottles. Yeah. Yeah. And then my second company was a part associates, and that focused on, you know, sourcing more diversity through recruitment and leveraging the relationships I had with corporate America. So real estate really didn't get into the pitch until 2017. That's so fascinating. simultaneously, I was still working in corporate America, but I always knew down the line 
that eventually I like to kind of just go out on my own. So I knew nothing about real estate or development. It was 2017. I went to Maryland. And a buddy of mine told me about this girl who did extremely well. She was younger than me, but she was in real estate. And as we're driving back, I'm just thinking about my career. I'm thinking about my wife. We just had Junior. And just thinking about me calling her and my frustrations about just dealing with, you know, the hierarchy and dealing with kind of just being trapped and not being able to kind of get out the box because my own ambition and, and, you know, as an African-American, when you are usually the only one or one of two in these environments, sometimes there's some microaggression, there's some different behaviors, there's some different things that come up that you start to wonder who you are, Hmm. right? And I didn't want to feel like that anymore. I wanted to, you know, be in control because this life, right, is temporary, And it was pretty clear since I was 12 years old how temporary this life is because of my dad. So I think me starting a company, being triggered by me getting laid off and me just, you know, all the different experiences I had, both good and bad Mm -hmm. professionally, Mm -hmm. I wanted to better myself. Yeah. And so in 2017, when I came back from Maryland, I went to talk to my wife and I said, hey, I want to get my real estate license. She said, I support you. So I, the summer of 2017, I went to the Minnesota School of Realty, and I always knew that, you know, I was going to make that transition. But development was nowhere in the, in, in the picture. Yeah, that's a pretty big jump from having a 100% owned building that is affordable and gorgeous and sustainable from getting your real estate license. Um, what are we, are, are we at five years? <laughs> We're five years, just to be super clear. Yeah, and, you know, <laughs> What's interesting is that when I got my license, I talked to my dad. My dad encouraged me as well because I actually um, took the LSAT twice. So I actually wanted to go to law school. So initially— I'd just like to say as a lawyer in the room, I think you made the right choice. <laughs> <laughs> I think someone told me, they said, Johnny, um, why do you want to be a lawyer? And I said, well, I think I was trying to make my dad happy, mm-hmm. right? But I, I see law as the structure that basically, you know, the pillars that hold businesses together. At the end of the day, that's how I see it. And initially, I was a pre-law at Augsburg University. So I changed to business because I was actually a poli-sci major. And then I switched to business management. And my dad was like, what are you going to do with a poli-sci degree? Mm -hmm. Because he's an accountant. He's in business. But he knew I've always been in sales talking to people. So he has always been a big focal point in my life in terms of me kind of modeling his behavior and just trying to make him proud. He was an academic. You know, he uh, was really prevalent in terms of just raising the bar in terms of what I wanted to do with my life. So in 2017, I went to Minnesota School of Realty that summer and passed all my classes, my exams, and started selling houses. So a friend of mine, I talked to her, I reached out to her, I said, hey, I got my license, you know, are you looking at selling your house or are you looking? At, are you interested in buying one? Yeah. She said, no, but I do want to introduce you to somebody. So she introduced me to Rich Packenden, well-known mm-hmm. developer in St. Paul. Yeah. And that meeting changed my life. Because hmm. simultaneously, I just thought I was going to sell houses. Yeah. And she provided this intro in 2018. And I didn't know what he did. All I knew, he was smiling the entire time that we were talking. He was talking about his family, 
he was in control of his life. And that was, from the beginning, always the things that I wanted to right. do. Right? right. And that meeting led to an intro to B. Kyle, President CEO of the St. Paul Area Chamber, which I now serve on the board of directors. And so what did he say to you to say, all right, you're selling houses, you're doing really well, uh, like, build something of your own? Well, I, at that time, I didn't know because I told him that, you know, initially we we're just talking about real estate. You know, we weren't even talking about development. We were just talking about life, talking about just being human beings, taking care of our families, all the things that really matter, right? And I'm not saying development doesn't matter, but at, the, at, at face value, if you meet someone for the first time, you're, getting, you're trying to get to know who that person is, right? But his energy was contagious, and I just love this freedom, right? So from that meeting to be Kyle, to from be Kyle to different council members, I was having conversations with my dad, and my dad was always complaining about his dilapidated conditions, the amenities not working, the lack of empathy from the owners and operators that own the building. It was just always something. And I would have to leave Maple Grove, go all the way to St. Paul, try to figure it out, try to be a problem solver. And and at the same time, my dad is navigating, you know, having atrophy on his left side. Mm. So, you know, mind you, this is 1983 when he first had a stroke. We're in 2017. So after all those years of medication, yeah. surgeries, you name it, it takes a toll on someone's body. However, my father never complained, not once. So for me, that was a big deal. But I wanted to make him happy. Mm-hmm. And I knew something inside me just said, you know, man, some, he, he's, he's not, just stay close. He's not going to be around too much longer. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know when. I just knew that it was an opportunity for me to really, you know, be very close to him and trying to figure out how I can help him. Mm-hmm. So we, we were having a conversation, and I asked him, I said, hey, you know, can you live with me? And I just got married. My wife just had Junior, and she was I think she was pregnant with Giovanna. And he said no. Mm-hmm. And the reason why he said no was because he wanted me to enjoy my wife. Yeah. And he also wanted me to enjoy being a father. And he didn't want to be a burden. My father's a very proud man, mm-hmm. Nigerian man. And I respected that. So the next words out of my mouth, I think you know, was, well, I'm going to build you something. And the last thing you want to tell this guy, you, you're going to do something and not do it. <laughs> and um, so I said, I'm going to build you something. And then that kind of just spurred and snowballed into my next conversation with the different council members. I didn't have it really formulated yet, but I did know that I wanted to do something. But in terms of structure, how I was going to you know, get financing and you know, find an architect, I think just with my ability to build relationships and understand people, that provided me a really good foundation because I've been prospecting, I've been cold calling, I've been building relationships for a very long time. And I've been dealing with government entities, dealing with corporations for a very long time. So, you know, whether you're the top of the food chain or you're an individual contributor, I was always used to those conversations and navigating how to work, you know, my value proposition and understanding, you know, where they're coming from. Because really in sales, your job is to find a solution for their problem. So either you're right-sizing, right? Mm-hmm. So you're figuring out their situation and find a solution. And hopefully over time, you can provide them an ROI by maybe upselling them into a newer product or service that continues that relationship both professionally and you know they can maybe see the economics that they may have not thought of based right. on this new solution. So just having that foundation, I think, allowed me to kind of navigate these waters Mm -hmm. that were foreign 
So my meeting with Council Member Jane Prince really just took everything to the next level. We met, and she was extremely kind, and we had a great meeting. And mind you, I met everyone from Chairman Tolbert. Me and Chairman Tolbert, we actually went to the same high school. He graduated in 01, and I graduated in 2000. I didn't know that. And, I mean, they were, all, they were really kind and warm in terms mm-hmm. of just accepting someone that just had some pretty big ideas. But she had this site at 520 Payne Avenue, and, you know, we met, and she, you know, said, hey, John, I got this site that I've been seeing, you know, since my, my, my time here in this world, and it's just a beautiful site. I think you should go take a look at it. And, you know, as you mentioned earlier, you know, when I'm on those calls for ULI, I'm always following through. I'm always yeah. asking questions, right? And I said, where's that? I literally left that meeting uh-huh. and went directly to the site. And I saw the hollows clear as day in 2018. Clear as day. So, and are you under a year out from getting your real estate license? And mind you, getting my real estate license had nothing to do with development. Yeah. Nothing. Right. It was just more of an opportunity for me to understand, at least from a foundational standpoint. Right how real estate works mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, the different asset classes from commercial to residential to farm and to land. And also, you know, making that transition from corporate America to becoming an entrepreneur. Yeah. So that meeting, which drove me to 520 Payne Avenue, kind of just spurred everything. And then from there, you know, four and a half years later, $18.4 million project, 62 units for individuals and families. You know, we're in partnership with U.S. Bank, the tax credit investor, Fabulous relationship, Redstone's a lender in New York City. And then, of course, the other sources from the city of St. Paul, Ramsey County, Met Council, Department of Deed, LISC, and, you know, Great Minnesota Housing Fund, you know, providing half a million in pre-development financing. So it's been, it's been an interesting ride these last four and a half years. So the Hollows has, it's affordable. And what's your affordability metric? So we have 62 units. So the breakdown is we have 60% AMI. We also have fair market value rents, which hover around 50 to 55%, if you look at it from a percentage standpoint. And then we have five deeply affordable rents at 30% AMI. So for the majority, you're going to see 60 in fair market value. Mm-hmm. And then those five are deeply affordable with no supportive services. So I equate it to like this. If you're working at McDonald's, if you're working somewhere, and maybe your hourly wage doesn't give you the ability to live in market rate or afford you know, workforce housing, or maybe you have you know, a voucher and that's where the deeply affordable rents come into play. But also, too, you know, your firefighters, your teachers, your police officers, your CNAs, your nurses, folks that are making money but mm-hmm. don't have the means to pay $3,000 a month, you know, in other cities or suburbs, but have the economics to pay, you know, 1500 or 13 or 12 well, there you go. Right. There's Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and you know, I think that you've really highlighted some of the the extraordinary complexities of affordable housing in general. Is that when we think about affordable housing, we have to think about the firefighters, the teachers, the professionals who are working, where their rental their rental costs are just way in excess of what you know is recommended. Right? The 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 experts and the and HUD says you know thirty percent of that income that's coming in on a monthly basis, that's what you should put towards housing, but where and how. And and what you're providing does that. But more importantly, it meets those needs that your father wasn't getting met in his facility, right? Where he was living. Exactly. My father was living in an apartment building in St. Paul. And, you know, what's interesting is I really got a chance to see live, you know, how powerful your home is. So what I mean by that is he moved, I think, in June 
or May to a new building, and his energy changed. Hmm. All the complaints stopped. All the phone calls stopped. In fact, I had to call him. And I remember I gave this example. People were laughing in uh, St. Louis. I said, uh, Dad, um, how's everything going? What are you doing? I'm relaxing. <laughs> Very deep Nigerian voice. I'm relaxing. I said, um, okay. I said, okay. And um, which meant that everything was fine. Yeah. He was cool. And that let me know, you know, how powerful in terms of him having the ability to feel peace, dignity, on um, the respect that I think every human being mm-hmm. deserves, regardless of your, of your economics. And that's really the premise. That's the narrative I'm trying to build in terms of the hollows. The hollows, everyone's building these projects, right? But I think the difference is that when I'm speaking to developers, they don't have my background. Mm-hmm. Either they've been handed the keys or they come from a completely different background and they have the capital to yeah. make that transition. And this is just, you know, something that they're doing to contribute in terms of, you know, this is, you know, my um, good cause. Yeah. So for me, this is real intentional. Right. So I'm not building box with windows. No. I'm building an actual community that folks can take pride in. And I like to stay in the weeds. Yeah. And the reason why, not to be micromanaging, but just to make sure that the character of that building is a big deal, right? right? And making sure that everyone from the property management staff to design, to construction, to sustainability, which we'll discuss, to civil, you name it. We need to make sure at the beginning that we're building a a Margaret in design building that's going to be around for a long time, that's going to be sustainable, and most importantly, reflect the economics of that community. That community is probably one of the poorest Mm-hmm. in the city of St. Paul. So when you invest $20 million, almost $20 million in that project, that says something. Absolutely. Right? That's a big right. deal. So everything that you would see downtown Minneapolis of St. Paul, we got we got washers and dryers in every unit. We have knockdown ceilings. We have granite countertops. We got solid core doors. We got underground parking. We got a community business center. We got a fitness center. So whatever you're gonna, typically going to see in your downtowns or your suburbs those 62 individuals, those families, are going to get access to that. And this is brand new. So it's interesting. I was, um, we rented a uh, temporary leasing office directly adjacent across the street from the hollows. And I'm seeing actual individuals and families walk in there. They don't know who I am. Yeah. And I like it like that. Yeah. And I'm seeing them fill out the applications and the smiles on their faces. It's a big deal. Yeah. So for me, it's really important to know that the continuation of folks like my dad Right, that needed access to high quality housing and the effect it's going to have on them and their families. So if they have to make a decision at seven o'clock at night when the kids are taking a shower at bed, if they can play soccer Mm because there's an application fee or their private school tuition is due or they don't want this bill to go out another day because they hate their collections because they're worried they're going to have to pay their rent. Those decisions, to an extent, not necessarily stop, but... um, they have more breathing room. Mm-hmm. They're not a house poor. Right. So for me, that's yes. a big deal. So I think at the end of the day, you know, do I see my business, you know, always being intentional and making sure that uh, we're mission-based and as a for-profit, you know, company that uh, we're going to continue to build these kind of projects? Absolutely. But this is definitely just the beginning. Yeah. I really want to make sure that uh, in every project I'm attached to that I'm intentional and I stay in the weeds. And that's one thing I learned from Rich. You know, deals are destroyed when you're not in the weeds. Mm-hmm. You need to know everything. You can't be surprised. 
Well, you wouldn't have that capital stack if you weren't in the weeds. I mean, that's what I think is so exceptional, you know, about the first phase of your project. I mean, I'm all in on the the idea of place and space because that matters and that matters in how we wake up and, and live and breathe every day. And that's your dad's story. And that's the story of so many families, you know, even in the case of the work that the counties did over the course of the last two years, getting folks out of shelters and into hotels for a short period of time. That made a difference yep. in having a place to come and to be and to settle and to have your your brain and your mind and your you know spirit free to think of, okay, what comes next? To have those conversations and to be secure. So I am all in on that, but I think there's no way you get there unless you do exactly what you did, which was to knock on every door and to get every single piece of funding to make that full and possible and create that level of peace for your future residents. Yeah, and I think, you know, just having that personal connection, you know, we we stayed in these townhouses that were uh, affordable growing up, and I didn't know because I knew nothing about affordable housing. I just knew I had a big bedroom. It was nice. It was brand new. And there was a basketball court across the street in the tot lot. And I used to go there all the time. You know, our second project in Brooklyn Center, Wangster Commons, I modeled that, you know, entire project based off my living at these townhouses. So again, I go back to that personal connection. Yeah. So I think, you know, for me, you know, I really think through these projects. And I and I, I got to give a lot of credit to a lot of the people that helped me. You know, in, certain, in terms of understanding the financial literacy, reading and understanding the performa, U.S. Bank gave me a compliment. They said that, uh, Johnny, I see this as a compliment. They said, Johnny, the way you're underwriting Wangster Commons, you, you might as well be an underwriter. <laughs> you're, you're, you're mad conservative, you know, because, um, you know, just in this world of uncertainty. Absolutely. You need to have as much fat in your deals to circumvent any kind of uncertainty that could come your way in terms of you saw lumber pricing, right? You know, initially we were at 54 units, the hollows. We got to 62 because I started thinking outside the box and said, how many more units can we bring to this building Mm -hmm. based on the square footages? And we looked like we could bring eight. So we were able to, you know, size more debt, you know, because NOI increased in terms of revenues. And, you know, just thinking outside the box brought (laughs) our gap down, Right. right? And so when you think like that, you know, and just like, oh, man, we got a $2 million uh, gap or a $1 million gap, you know. And at that time, we still didn't even, I think in terms of property tax, and we, we, we didn't even have the 4D property tax, hmm. you know, in the deal yet. And then we, when we entered that in, then our gap continued to reduce because now we're paying, you know, since it's an affordable project, you know, we got that discounted rate at 40%. So I think what I'm getting to is when you start to think about, you know, yeah. your sources and, and, and your uses and, you know, looking at the deal in totality— now you're starting to understand, you know, the the nuances of how these financing metrics can work and get these deals across the finish line. But more importantly, it gives confidence to the investor, the lender. Imagine, you know, your background is not in construction. It's not in architecture. It's not in law. It's, and you basically are using everything you've been taught and learn from a JV that I was involved in. And then, you know, when that JV ended in every meeting that we was a part of, I was the one that interviewed the architects and brought them on board. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I interviewed and accepted them was they said, Johnny, if we're not going to work with a developer that skims on affordable projects. So, for example, if they're not going to skim on a market rate project and bring in the highest quality materials, we want them to do the same for affordable. Yeah. 
So I hired him immediately. So same thing with Doran. Doran has a great reputation for building, you know, great product. And, you know, this is the design build. So they're both designing and building it. And I got to tell you, they've done a great job. So a lot of things that, you know, just from internal conversations could have, you know, switched the conversation to one that maybe we, we didn't want to have because the collection of brains, mm-hmm. experience, and just the integrity of these firms that I brought in, because each one I brought in, I wanted to make sure that there was an opportunity for me to learn from them as well. Yeah. You can't be the smartest person in the room. That's my philosophy. Absolutely right. If I'm, if I'm the smartest person, I'm in the wrong room. Yeah. <laughs> That's just me. I'm, 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 I'm more adept to the conversations that are being had now versus, you know, two, three years ago, based on the knowledge and the experience and the exposure I've had with these individuals. Yeah. Well, so you have an incredible team and you've got multiple projects going in two cities. What has your experience been in working with cities? So so you said that when you started out, you had those important one-on-one conversations with the council members in St. Paul and talking about what their needs are and the needs of their community. But, you know, what do you see and, and how do you approach that process, right? It's Everything hinges on it. You have this team, you're ready to go, you can you can build it, you can, you know, bring this product to market, you can finance it, but you've got to get through that city council first. How does that work for you? And then how does, what can cities do to make projects like the hollows, like Windshead Commons, happen? You know, I think for me, it all hinges on relationships and your ability to be humble. I think the city of St. Paul and Brooklyn Center are anomalies. Hmm. because I've worked with a few cities and their approach is a little different, right? But I give credit to St. Paul and to Brooklyn Center because they treated me like some of the developers you work with out the gate. They never questioned. Yeah. They never made me feel like, you know, well, this guy doesn't know anything. No. They treated me like an equal. So when you get that, it builds your confidence. It makes you feel like, oh, wow, they really value me. Yeah. And it does a lot for the the development team to know that the city sees you as an equal. And they say, oh, this is serious. They're not taking this guy for a joke. So I think with the city of St. Paul, working with PD from the beginning and seeing, you know, how hungry I was to learn, first and foremost, really, I think, garnered their attention. And then in addition to that, the people that I'd bring in the room with me were... You know, you couldn't question their experience. I mean, these were highly sought, consummate yeah, professionals right. in the industry that had dealt and worked with them for many, many, many years. So to see that association with me increased their confidence. And what's interesting is that some of those relationships that were established then would find its way back to me two, three, or four years later. Hey, Johnny, I worked with you uh, in 2018. I'm seeing all your progress. Well, we have an opportunity to hopefully maybe work again in 2023 because now I'm over here. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, as I mentioned earlier, it's all about relationships, but I think what cities can do, you know, right now, and and I say this, if there is an opportunity to work with a newer developer, specifically women and people of color, right? Because we don't make up the majority of CRE. Mm -mm. I think we make up maybe less than 4 or 3% in commercial real estate. And I credit, you know, the city of St. Paul for wanting to change the guard, yeah. and do things differently, which may make a few folks uncomfortable. But at the end of the day, if you're going to be building in these communities that look like me, how cool would it be if the person that is leading that team looks like me? Absolutely. Or is a woman. 
Absolutely. Right? Which, right. Mi- which represents the minority within CRA. So that's a big deal. So for them to take the lead on that, I think hopefully will set the example for other cities to pay attention to. And I think I think they're doing that. I think other cities are paying attention in terms of the groundwork, the framework that the city of St. Paul has laid out, uh, Brooklyn Center, and some other well-known cities that I'm having conversations with. But yeah. I think at the end of the day, if there's available parcels, and I say this to developers too, you know, I was on the phone today with uh, a CDFI in Maryland, and we were talking, and, you know, she had, had talked about this announcement, right? So imagine now you've closed this deal. Yeah. Now you got to build a damn thing. Right. Then you get operated. Mm-hmm. Right. And mind you, the riskiest time is during the construction, right? So now you got to remain on budget because you don't want a cash call, mm-hmm. right? Because if you have a developer fee that's been deferred, they're going to pull from that. So there's so many things that folks don't know that are newer that I didn't know until you're in the weeds that when you get into it, now you see why investors and yeah. lenders are risk averse. Right. Because it's really risky because if I get a $40,000 change order and I only have $100,000 in my contingency budget and that 60000 has to last me for X amount of months, you can't sleep at night. Yeah. Now, if you have a good team and they have the relationships in place with those vendors— and can really ask some, you know, specific questions about that change order. Who knows what can happen? Mm-hmm. That's why it's so key to make sure that you have a team that's well-oiled, experienced, understands from the beginning. And I think one of the things and why the house has been successful thus far is because I brought in architecture, construction, civil, landscape architecture, legal, all the players in the beginning, specifically property management in pre-development mm-hmm. to make sure that by the time we got enclosed, all right. those questions in terms of uncertainty from the doors. Imagine we got imagine we got hollow court doors. Right. Imagine if um some of the decisions that were made in pre-development were made after we closed. That could have been problematic. Absolutely. So that's why it's really key to make sure that, you know, you have a good team and you bring them, you know, at, in the beginning. It's going to save you a lot of headaches in the end. Yeah. Well, and again, it meets all of those sort of standards you've talked about in terms of making the project work. Having the management team there to talk about, you know, how does this project live and breathe when it's done? That's what, that's the impact. Like, that's the mission-driven part of it. And and you can build it, but without that, you know, sort of that day-to-day lived experience of, okay, this is how tenants are going to experience this part of the building. How are you supposed to know, you know? It might work from an architectural standpoint or it might work from a cost standpoint on your builder side, but it's those things of like this hallway is going to be, you know, this intersection or like Mm -hmm. this door placed here is going to create traffic when people are trying to get their groceries inside. That is how a building ends up living and breathing. And the fact that you deal with that on the front end, you know, I think, again, is reflective of your commitment to, to who you're serving. And, you know, that is such an important part. And uh, the fact that this bill is going to be around right. potentially longer than you yeah. is more reason enough to make sure that from the beginning at the genesis that you're bringing in, you know, the folks that are going to be managing this building, designing this building, building the building, doing excavation, all that on the front end to make sure that you're in the best, you know, financial position possible. And then, two, if you're a first-time developer, you know who's paying attention to this? Everybody. <laughs> Your lender, right. your investor, they're seeing everything. They may not say anything, yeah, but they're watching because 
you know, when you invest seven point six million from an from an equity standpoint or nine point one million, you know, from a city standpoint, before they get to that point, they're watching you. Mm-hmm. They want to make sure you have the behaviors because they've seen all these developers over the years, the successful ones and the not so successful ones. And there are similar traits among the ones that are successful and the ones that are not. Hmm. So if you have those, yeah. it's going to give them more confidence to say, hey, we're going to move forward or, you know what, he's not ready. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly right. Well, Johnny, thank you so much for your time today. We absolutely appreciate it. And it's really been a pleasure. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Megan. I really enjoyed our conversation. And thank you so much. I appreciate it.